And we're back. Welcome to Printer Games, the podcast about what's new and awesome in 3D printing for gamers. I'm your host, Jeffrey J. Thacker, also known as Param, and I'm joined by... Kristen Sowards, also known as Seventh Mastery. Kristen, you know what I hate the most? No. No. Fair answer. I hate going to my printer and then finding where I expected to get cool new dinosaur riding dinosaur. Instead, I have pancake. I hate <laughs> pancake. Here oh, is yes. one of the people joining us to help keep pancakes from happening. Ty from Table Flip Foundry. Hey, Ty. Guys, hi. Hello. How are you guys? Good. Happy to I have hope- you on. I, I like pancakes, but well, not that kind. <laughs> Have you <laughs> had your fair share of, of, of resin pancakes, Todd? Oh my! Oh my goodness! I couldn't even. There is no number I could provide you. I, I don't even know a number that high. Over the over the years, just hundreds and hundreds. So I actively for... te- I actively tell people like this is like j- don't get frustrated by it at all. It's there's just no reason to be frustrated by this. It's part of it. So for for our listeners' pleasure, those who may not know who you are, could you give us the elevator pitch about who you are and what you do and why you are an expert on pancake? Yeah. Um, okay. So my name's Ty. Uh, I own a company called Table Flip Foundry um, that sort of started off with just just, uh, I'm an obsessive hobbyist. And so I started off with one 3d printer, which turned into 10, which turned into 15, which is now like 22. And, um, that was just for hobby only. I, I didn't like have a business. I had no intent or intention of starting a business. And, um, I really would like find artists that I really liked and I would make friends with them. So like Velrock art or lion's tower, the, the artists, Dan and Keaton are, have become very good friends of mine. And over time, you know, pre-support started becoming a thing. And I started helping them with that, like as just to help them because they're my friends. And then, uh, you know, one day I just had an epiphany about, you know, about life. And uh, I was like, I want to work for myself. I've got these resources and knowledge. Let's go. And and it just sort of, you know, started from there. So my company does professional pre-supports. Um, you know, that's as far as how the company makes its money. But uh, aside from that, most people know that, you know, run a community where it's just all about teaching people how to not get pancakes, how to, you know, calibrate their printers, how to get them running right, help them troubleshoot. I think it can be a really daunting hobby to get into. And some people may get started, get frustrated and then quit. And I think that's a really, like, there's so much here, like there's so much fun to be had here that, uh, that I feel like they're missing out. And they, and they just, they got stuck at that first, that first speed bump which is hard for everybody who's just getting into it and it's like well let's let's get them way past that speed bump let's get them printing doesn't have to be perfect but let's get them going let's let's skip the pancake part and let's get them printing and and then we can get more people into the hobby and then the other part is just educating everybody as as best i can um with as much knowledge as i have to try to make it the we gotta we gotta grow the hobby the the technology will get better if there's more people in it you know and uh the better everybody does it the faster this will get better i it's one of the boogeymen out there that keeps getting raised anytime anybody tries to advocate 3d printing that oh you don't have time to get into 3d printing it's a whole hobby onto it yourself you all your models they need support and they're, they're gonna all fall apart and then your printer's gonna break uh, that is, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that is, uh, when I first started, that was it. I didn't know anything about it. I thought it was the most difficult, technical, like you got to know robotics and you got to learn how to program and you got to, uh, the goal, the goal for everybody. Uh, and a lot of people wanted to come in and just plug and play, right? Which we all know it's not exactly like that is to get as close to that as possible. Let's, 
let's speed up the learning curve. Um, and even if you don't want to get super technical, let's get you like, let's get you printing. And then you can learn the technical stuff as you go. But let's let's get you in love with the hobby soon with the with the least amount of like detail. Like we don't have to you can go down rabbits. I, it's it's like 730 my time. We could be here until three o'clock in the morning talking about the rabbit holes and in, in, in 3D printing. Right. We don't have to do all that when you're new. Let's just let's get you know, let's get your calibrated. Let's get your resin picked. Let's find some miniatures with some good supports get you print some stuff and then you can pick up things as you go and, and enjoy it. So I think any, anybody who's not currently part of the hobby, it is, it may, if you don't know anything about the hobby, it is not as difficult as you might think from the beginning until you start learning about those little rabbit holes you can dive down. But is if you don't enjoy that, if you don't enjoy tinkering, you don't have to, like a lot of people print and they just don't have that, you know, that desire to tinker and play and mess and look for perfect everything. Um, yeah, it is not as, it's not as scary. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do that actively, but, um, like I, when I first, I, I started flying drones, but only because I wanted to shoot video when I was playing paintball and I bought a drone and then I learned that drone, you have to build a drones. Like that, that I couldn't afford a DJI drone and it wasn't just plug and play. And I had to become a drone builder. I was like, I don't want to do this. It had no interest in that. So I stopped <laughs> doing drones. I oh, do gosh. really like building 3D printers. And you just uh, brought up some trauma. I just spent the last several <laughs> months like studying to get my drone license. Did you? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I did that uh, licensing was good years ago. So I, I got that taken care of. Oh, yeah. Years ago, it was like literally go get a pilot license. That's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, don't be afraid of it. If you're listening and, and you're not already a hobbyist in this, uh, but you're thinking about it, then stop thinking. <laughs> it's like time to do it. Well, it's a, a lot of thought and a lot of passion. I'm curious how you got started in gaming. Oh, we have a question. We do. Yeah. David Wickham uh, in chat says, print a perfectly calibrated drone. A ton of drones are 3D printed, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's uh, You can build your own from scratch. You can do, I think there's some kits for like less than 100 bucks where you 3D print your frame. And I'm, I'm pretty sure like 20% of Thingiverse is just drone parts. Heck yeah. I've had to do some for uh, for a friend of mine who, who flies the little little FP drones. Oh, I want one so bad. <laughs> um, well, okay, what you were saying, um, oh, how did I get into gaming? Yeah, yeah. Oh, geez. So uh, some of you guys might know, um, anybody watching that might know me on, on any level. I used to be um, a professional cage fighter, so I used to do MMA. And <laughs> okay. It's uh, not our normal intro to this. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, think the, I think the former rocket scientist has now got a, a challenger for most surprising answer to this question. <laughs> so I grew up, uh, I, I grew up in the country uh, and I love Ninja Turtles. And uh, because I grew up in the country, I can never do martial arts. Uh, but I really wanted to be Donatello. And uh, and so I became an adult and I had money and lived in a place where there were schools. And so I started martial arts and it just like it just went from there. So I've always this, been Donatello. This makes sense because you do machines. Right. That's the uh, that's that's me. Like 100 percent. The day I touched a computer for the first time when I was eight years old, I put my hands on a keyboard every day since every single day without fail. Uh, I'll even go camping and I still have like a laptop with me. I so, still want Donatello to MMA. I kind of see the through line, but I, I want to hear it. Yeah. Okay. So I just started martial arts mm -hmm. and um, uh, this is just to set up the type of person I am. But I started, I started doing Taekwondo, uh, okay. became obsessed. I was, I was at the school every day, four hours a day, six days a week that they were open. Um, I'm an obsessive hobbyist. And so 
I got my black belt and I was I like I had no interest in pursuing second and third and all of the degrees of black belt. I wanted right. to pursue more knowledge. So then I started doing judo. Ah, okay. And then I, you know, I fell away from that for a bit. Like I had black belted, I started teaching and then I got grown up jobs and started working at PayPal and and like doing these other things. But I sort of lived in this very uh you know I'm not a violent person. I, I just enjoy competition and um, and I won't get into too much into the fighting part, but uh, I've always been the type of person that's just sort of lived in this this aspect of life, like competitive, the competitive nature of me and sports. I played soccer and basketball, fighting and all that stuff. And um, and at the same time, had this interest in computers. And back when I was in high school, it was like dial up Internet. Right. You had mm-hmm. to use your phone line and, and you would go home. You only had one phone line. And if you were using it at night, nobody could use the phone. And uh, so it was very difficult to learn that stuff. But my school had a T1 line and I had broadband for the first time. And in the library, I had a friend who was like programming something I'm like, what are you doing? said, I'm making a website, a website, show me. And I was just like obsessed with, with like the computer and internet and all that stuff. And so simultaneously through like my youth, I was obsessed with graphic design and web design and also being Donatello. <laughs> and um, so through my like travels, I was working for a uh, web design company in Davis in California, uh, which I think is gone now. I, I don't even know solar systems or something like that. Um, and one of the guys who was a developer there played, he didn't play D and D, but he played tabletop RPGs. And, you know, I've, I've always had sort of both the balance of, of, you know, the, the geek or nerd in me and the, and the competitor in me. And so, so wait, wait, please tell me he played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness. He, he didn't, he didn't actually, oh, okay. the, that would have been perfect. Yeah. You. The game. And this is, this is really cool. And I, I don't think I've ever really shared this with very many people, but, um, so he was a player in a game and he said, Hey, at the college every Wednesday or whatever day it was, he's like, we go to, you know, the science lab and there's entire groups of people who play tabletop RPGs. And at the time I didn't know anybody in Davis. I had just moved there. I was dating a girl there, but I didn't have friends in the area. Um, she just was going to school there. And so this guy was like, Hey, you want to be my friend? And I was like, yeah, let's be friends. Like, let's go. And so I went to this for the first time and met his DM. Um, and his DM is like next level obsessed. He's like me obsessive hobbyist. Well, he was, he was not a fan of Dungeons and Dragons at the time, which would have been 3.5 then. Okay. Uh, and he, and so back then licensing was a little different, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I was very new. So my understanding of this is skew but uh licensing so you couldn't you couldn't use certain terms you couldn't have a beholder in your game if you were writing your own game because it was owned by dungeons or whoever owned it before we're both very familiar with that (laughs) so there were some other licensing systems that were open source and they i think they used to be called like a d20 licensing system so this guy was writing his own his own game and it was called you can still find the book. This I'm I'm almost 40 now. So this was 20 years ago. He was writing this game and he didn't have it published and we were his playtesters. And so he knew every rule, he knew every detail to everything cuz he was the one that wrote it all. And uh so the experience working with a person who has that depth of knowledge of the game you're playing was amazing. Yep. And because of that it was like instantly fell in love. I didn't do any role playing at all back then. It was 
the competitor in me is just all combat, all tactics. I played a cyber, like a cyber ninja. And uh, I can remember every detail to that character from 20 years ago, down to the equipment he had, all of the custom mods he had, all of the cybernetics, the bionics, all of it. I remember every detail to that game to the T wow. 20 years later. And um, he ended up publishing that book. It was called, uh, the system he created was called Universal Decay. And the, the, that module was called Dead Stars. And it was all future D20. And that sort of spawned it for me for a very long time. But then, you know, life gets in the way. I moved across the country. I kind of stopped hanging out with those guys. And I forgot about tabletop gaming for maybe 15 years. Oh, it, wow. just, it was just a, a thing from my past that I'd forgotten. Then I got a 3D printer and then I started, uh, you know, I have new friends where I live and and uh, they saw the 3D printer and they're like, you know what you could make? And I was like, what? I, I didn't know. I just wanted a 3D printer. Like You could you could make some like you could make miniatures for like gaming. I was like, oh, gaming. I forgot about gaming. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so it was sort of like that that lifestyle I had lived before was sort of like pretty far away from like when I was fighting and training, it was, it was fighting men twice a day. And the idea of like tabletop gaming had just become so far from my consciousness that I'd forgotten. And, and so the, you know, this is why I bring up the fighting is just sort of, I lived that life a long time. And then, and then now that I'm retired and I'm done with that life, it's like, what, well, what do we do with our time now? We've got to do some other things. And, and I, the answer I, you chose was staring very closely <laughs> at the backside of an orc for eight hours a day. Yeah. Just, just like doing one of these or putting supports on it. Right. Right. So one on uh, the big toe. Yeah. So we, you know, we, it just so happens that, um, that I have a friend and mm -hmm. he was looking to start a game with all of our, all of our friends. And we managed to convince every one of our close group to play D and D. Some of them had never played before mm -hmm. and we talked him into it. And then that was sort of like eye opening. And, and even then I wasn't a role player at all. I was still mm -hmm. a tactician. It was all like, where's combat? How far away am I? What skills do I have? And, um, and then over time we all really fell in love with it. I've told other people who aren't tabletop gamers, like, can you imagine a better way to spend a Saturday night than hanging out with a group of your closest friends, telling stories and laughing? Like, like there's just like the bar is nothing compared to that. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, don't, I don't go drinking on Saturdays. I go play D&D &D with my friends. And then, uh, you know, Critical Role. I got introduced to Critical Role and and that sort of opened my eyes to the role play because that's very role play heavy. Yep. And I was like, you know, I think I've skipped I think I've skipped a part of this where I'm missing out on something big that I should not have been missing out on. And so I made a voice and pretended to be a character and it's just been absolute love ever since. I still manage to play even though I'm busy. That is, yeah. that is one thing that, that has to take place for me. It's therapy, but, um, but that's how I got into gaming, man. I started off as Donatello, met, you know, met some guys, uh, learned it, forgot it, relearned it. And and here we are now just, you know, like I live every day kind of revolving around the game. I'm and, glad because you said 14 hours a day earlier and you were saying that you're working all the time before we started the, the show. And like the idea that you were doing that and not getting to game at all just crushed oh, my soul. No, no. Was, Saturday yeah. nights. I drop everything. I might still have my phone on me and like reply to important messages or something like that. But no, mm -hmm. everything goes to the side for four hours every Saturday. I mean, yeah. Ditto for being glad. Cause so yeah. many of the guests we interview, we ask them, so what do you play these days? And they're like, nothing. I just <laughs> sculpt and hustle. 
Yeah. It's like that has to be the, and I know it can be because I've been on that side of the fence a couple of times and it really sucks working really close into a hobby or industry you love as your day job and then not getting to actually enjoy it and just hearing about how much everybody else is enjoying the stuff you make. Just out of reach. Yeah, oh. like, oh, I could, if I could just start a game. Yeah. yeah. The other well, thing one I, last question I have to ask. What are yeah. you playing in your current D&D game? Uh, like what character? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we have two D&D games. Oh, two? Uh, yeah, so my, my DM and his brother-in-law both. both DM. Okay. They're okay. both. Um, my main character is a character called Dust. And okay. I started, so our group has been which I know a lot of people have a hard time finding, unbelievably reliable. They show up for the game consistently. The best. There are times where we have like a gap, like October's busy for all of us, um, but we're we're playing on Friday because Saturday's busy for everybody. So oh, nice. that's, we're, that's going, dedicated. we're going on four years, so it's like blessing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but four years ago, they didn't have Leonin. All they had was uh. Tabaxi. So he's, his char- the character's name is Dust on the Road, and he is a... A tabaxi that I just sort of like added flair to make him a lion, nice. uh, and uh, and he is um, a barbarian. And he, he, this is weird. He was an eagle totem barbarian, and through circumstances of our game, has been uh, he made a, a a contract with a devil. Okay, this is a, always a great decision. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. And the contract for the devil was to <clears throat> he he is falling in love with another character like slowly. Uh-huh. Uh, four years he's been falling in love, and still they still haven't realized it yet. But he um, he essentially is is through his backstory uh, he has lost a lot of people, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. and he, he sort of seeks to like not have that happen ever again. Like to right. to any degree, no friends. Are gonna die while he's on, while they're on his watch. Well, the one he's sort of like slowly falling in love with, she did die once in front of him. Oh, and through divine intervention, was saved. Okay, but he, but to him, the role play part of him, right in character, he watched her die, and uh, and just like everybody else. So the the contract is <clears throat> for him to be strong enough to protect uh, everybody in his party and to change it's like i I don't know how to word this uh if she is ever to perish it will be him who dies instead gotcha so does that change up your mechanics or so what happened was my dm said all right you were very broad with become strong enough to protect everybody and Mm -hmm. he shifted the barbarian from a totemic barbarian to a wild magic barbarian Cool. Um, which was just appropriate for our game without okay. getting into I have, I have a sneaky purpose here because then I'm like, did you convince any mini sculptors to make your character? I did, in fact. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the secret bonus <laughs> of this hobby. Yeah. Um, so so two different artists, actually, Ke- Keaton and Dan, Lions, Lions Tower and Valrock Art, wow. Um, wow. specifically, um, they specifically did Leonin sets and Keaton specifically did a character just for me. And then Dan modified one of his Leonin characters um, to match like the aesthetics of mine. And then um, and then recently I got an, another one. Like I have maybe some that I've kitbashed myself uh-huh. and then some that an artist has taken the time to go out of their way. All right. Yeah. So, you know, the set. OK, which one is it? Okay, uh, you know what? I will. Uh, I can do the same here. I can. I can. You, you probably me... actually can't. 
well, well, I, I can't switch your screen, but I can switch my screen. Yeah, that's true. You can probably make yeah, it. Yeah, because I, I have the way I have it set up is let me show you. <laughs> this is going to be through 3D Builder here. So, so this, oh, okay. this is dust. Nice. I know this is I like the rendering and 3D Builder is amazing. So this is the one by Velrock Art. Very cool. And then I, I feel like if I go try to find the one from Lions Tower, which um, which is kind of buried. I might take up too much time here, so I don't think no, I'll that's fair. To, that's yeah, fair. to grab it right this right, minute. But, right. uh, cool. So those two guys have have gone out of their way to make sure I have a like my. For our audio listeners, it's this really awesome lion barbarian in a, a kilt with a big ginormous f off battle axe in one hand. It's, it's, it's nice. It's lovely. It's about as it's barbarian lovely. as it gets. <laughs> yeah. And that was from Velrock. Is that, that available on their site if they wanted to buy one? I'm actually. I don't believe he. He sells that many i think he put it up on thingiverse oh, oh that's cool, cool. so people go for free this. yeah this was yeah. done uh before you know before he was running a business and so it was just something nice he did um because that dude's great so it's really cool and then the the one the set that you had just presented one of the i think the leader of that set Dan had gone in and I think he he knew I had like belts and and certain gauntlets and stuff like that so he modified one of those characters with that axe um for me so I I would I want to show it and I feel bad that I can't but I don't want to It'll take me five minutes to try to find it, and we got better things nope. to do. Yeah, no problem. No problem. <laughs> so let's get on topic with supports. And we've ah. explained supports a few times on the podcast before, but you're an expert at supports. Yeah, so, I, I so, hope so. An, <laughs> so if in a succinct manner, could yeah. you please answer why supports? Why do we even need to have these weird tower-looking scaffoldings hanging off our minis? Um, all right, so... That's hard to describe. If if you are unfamiliar with 3D printing, trying to describe this can be hard. But the the long and short of it is physics are not our friend in 3D printing. And mm -hmm. because of that, when we try to print things that are floating in a particular way in 3D space, they won't float. And so in order for them to print properly, they have to be in some way grounded, right? Which is you connecting the floating bit to the build plate, which is then connected to the printer, which is then grounded to the world in some way. And so we can sort of like circumvent not being able to just float objects in 3D space by by connecting them with this sort of like, you know, physical architecture. It's about the best way I could probably put it. So a, a good way to visualize this is if you say if you have a character who is standing up, you, it's not just enough usually to just make sure that the feet touch the build plate because maybe an elbow is hanging down or they're holding something and there's arms hanging down or their their chins at a weird angle. Anything that stops pointing up or at a very or at an acceptable slope but suddenly starts pointing back down at the build plate uh, needs to be secured in some manner it is an island right. which is what we call those uh, the points on the model that uh, at that particular z-axis point is not connected to anything else it's just floating in midair and nothing else would hold it up or allow it to print yep that's that's the best description without some visual some visual aid or like a long. Well, we're a podcast, so yeah. we gotta, we gotta <laughs> that, do it. That's about the, the easiest way we can put it into words. Yep. All right. So what? So what do you do? Uh, do you just find all the islands and then slap a piece of plastic on it? Or? That's it. Let's go. No. Um, so when people enter the hobby, they they start to understand mm -hmm. the the purpose and need for for supports. Mm -hmm. um, what takes a long time to understand is the depth at which they can be done and um, 
and the importance of, of understanding and doing them well. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, the, the, some of it's just holding up a, a portion of a model that's, that's hanging out there in space. Um, but the other part of it is understanding things like suction forces and pull forces and, and speeds and sizes and contact damage. And we're starting, I'm, I'm starting to, to learn more and more as we go that um, different resins have different properties, like physical properties. So there are some resins that are harder and stronger. There are some resins that are more flexible and, and softer. Um, so when you when you start to get into supports, if you're only doing the supports for yourself, you're likely to sort of like settle into what works best for you. Um, but to support any given model, even for somebody like myself, uh, it can take half an hour to an hour, sometimes more to do one model. And not everybody wants to spend that time, you know, learning a technical skill, st struggling with it, failing at it, having to redo it, print again, losing material. Like it's a process. And so... It's valuable um, game time. That's right. We could be doing something. We could be painting. And so companies like mine will sort of try to account for those things beforehand. So an artist will create a nice miniature. They'll create a, a Leonin Barbarian. And in order to save you from having to learn all of those technical details right away or save you a ton of time, they'll hire a company like mine who will do the pre-supports on the model once now and so that hundreds of people can then not have to do it later. So we can save you a ton of time. And in that process, they can hire somebody who has dedicated supreme amounts of time to understanding the where's, when's, why's, how's of like placing a support, what size support, when to do it this way, when to use that technique so that the end result is better than something you would likely put together yourself without a huge amount of study or practice. So, so that's kind of what our what our business does and why we do it is just save artist time and save hobbyist time. Uh, and then hopefully we, we do a better job than, than you would deign to do on your own without, without spending the, the time to learn. And even, even then it's like, I, you know, I like to support my models and I know my printer very well. I happen to know like my Sadrin's got a quirk with this part of the build play and all this stuff. And so I know what to support for my printer. And mm -hmm. like, it's like, ain't no way on earth that bow's going to print without a medium. Uh, yeah, I know, yeah, I yeah, know yeah. The things like that. Right. Um, but that's, I'm one of thousands of potential customers with, different permutations this has to be really hard to make supports for these models that will work on saturns and any cubic since this weird off-brand chinese thing and yeah yeah you are absolutely right so oftentimes uh, you know i'll speak with people through facebook through reddit through discord any you know whatever platform we happen to be having the discussion and I, I used to also be like this. And the part of it is, is there is a sort of surface level understanding of how it works and why. Um, but what, what a lot of people who are learning the hobby or getting into the hobby or not really obsessive like I am, or maybe you are, is, is that they, they don't know what they don't know. And so there are so much, so many things to consider. And so what will happen is somebody will try to print a pre-supported model, whether it's, you know, me or another company or an artist who did it or whatever, and it'll fail. And they, you know, they assume that the, the pre-supports are bad or they assume their printer is not set up right or they assume some other thing, right? When it could be a combination of all three, it could be... Uh, 
It could be just the supports. It could be just the tune. So understanding those things is usually sort of like a deeper thing. And, and that's what my team and I focus on mostly. So when we have to evaluate uh, how do we support something for the broadest amount of people to print successfully, that's a really loaded, that's a really loaded thing. So I was thinking about this earlier today because I figured this would be something we talk about. And it was like, how do you, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you an embarrassing story about me mm-hmm. and then I'll leave that in. So, a cu- and I've told this story before, but a couple of years ago, I was new, it was 2019, maybe I was somewhat new. Resin printing was just sort of just coming out. It was the Mars and the Photon and that was it. Um, the, the YouTube videos back then were how to sand your model, how to sand the support marks off your model, right? Mm-hmm. Nowadays, if you have to break out a file and sand, somebody messed up, <laughs> right? Like somebody messed up their support somewhere along the way. And, and I'll go even as far as to say, if you have to get hot water and heat up your model in order to remove your support, somebody has missed the mark somewhere, whether it wow. be you or your pre-support artist. I, I have not used heat to remove supports from any models in, in the better part of a year or two. So um, I have high standards, of course. But <laughs> I would go as far, I would go as, far to, as to say that. Um, but uh, there, there are many things that, that we didn't know back then that we do know now but those that knowledge from back then is sort of like a new person joining the hobby. That's the level of knowledge they, they are likely to have. So there are variables that we can't consider for everybody. And so everybody coming in and being like, well, it's just you just have to turn your exposure up. It's like the failure may not be that it could be like here's a list of things I was thinking, like what could cause failure? Uh, it could be the condition of your FEP. It could be how tight your FEP is stretched. It could be how thick your FEP is. Uh, it could be your build plate is not flat. It could be your build plate is not level. It could be that your resin is old. It could be that your resin is not properly mixed. It could be that your exposure settings are low. It could be that your lift settings are too high. It could be, you know, like the amount of variables are wide. <laughs> very, oh, yeah. very okay. wide. Trying to just troubleshoot all that gives me anxiety just even thinking about it, <laughs> yeah. like making my career. I can't even. So, so what we, is that what I've done is, is I looked at some of the problems that I was seeing in the community um, where where people were struggling to find um, a common answer is probably the best way to say it. So like calibration, we're obviously we're going to get into calibration, but yeah. <laughs> calibration is one of those things that is sort of a, a uh, unknown to a lot of mm-hmm. people. So what will happen is they'll print a, you know, a detailed calibration part and there are plenties out there. The one I used to use the most was the Amerilabs town mm-hmm. and they would print it. And then Amerilabs does have documentation on it, but man, you got to read a book of, of like text, <laughs> a wall of text just to decrypt what they're saying. And sometimes no different than trying to explain with words how what supports are for and why they're needed they're trying to explain with words like what to look for in a visual thing and and then you'll find you'll still find them everywhere but you'll find pictures on reddit you'll find pictures on facebook you'll find people posting and asking like hey how does this look right one guy jumps in he says you look overexposed look at this area and another guy will jump in and be like no you're underexposed look at this area and then five people say you look fine and then four people say turn up your exposure and so there was no standard, right? And so I was looking at this going, this, how, how are we supposed to account for all of these people's opinions about the outcome of a calibration test? And it just became very clear to me, my opinion, of course, is that a calibration test that you print 
and don't know if you're calibrated when it is, when it's over is not a good calibration, right? Like you have not cal- you've not done anything besides confuse yourself. And so when I started thinking about that, I'm the type of person who likes to break everything down to its root, right? It's like the little kid who keeps asking why, like, well, why do we need supports? Well, we have to hold up the model. Why do we have to hold up the model? Well, because it has to be this way. Why? Well, why does it have to be that way? And so if you keep asking why long enough, you're going to get down to the very root of it. So I tried to break down. I do miniatures mostly. So so a lot of my work is based around miniatures. But I tried Mm -hmm. to break down like, okay, what's what's the what's the be all end all of printing something successfully? Mm -hmm. And then it occurs to me, like, of course, the supports. You can't print anything unless it's supported most of the time, right? I was like, okay, we need to come down to, we need to break it all the way down to the supports. How can we make a thing that tells you yes or no? It will work. It will not work. And and so it occurred to me that like, well, what is a pancake? A pancake is a very clear no. And what is a successful print, right? A very clear yes. So how can we use that very clear yes or no to help mm-hmm. everybody stop having opinions about whether it's right. And so that's where the cones of calibration came from. There it is, look at it. Um, so the cones of calibration were designed and my understanding of, of what I was doing then has changed. I've learned a lot since I con- like concepted the idea, but the idea was very clear, yes or no, right? With the idea in mind that the cones would be tuned to work with the widest range of pre-supported models at the time. Right. So, you know, every podcast, for our podcast listeners, I'm throwing up a picture of the cones of calibration, and it is a what looks like an I-beam that's been lined on two sides with two cones that are pointing at each other, one on the top, one on the bottom, with a very thin pillar bet- that connects the two cones. One side's labeled success, and the other side is labeled failure. They resemble uh, like an hourglass a lot mm-hmm. with that little teeny connection in the middle. And, and so the idea initially was was okay we need to know what size supports hold up what size detail and that that sort of spawned into okay no we don't need to know that we just need to make it fail when we want make it succeed when we want and that was the root of it it was okay if i turn my exposure up i predict that more of these cones are going to print so then we run it through the printer and the prediction is right and that's the root of where the cone started was can we predict a result if we can predict a result then we can force the outcome with our predictions. And Mm -hmm. so the cones, each cone has a different size contact. (laughs) Uh, Each cone has a different size contact. And those contacts are very precisely tuned to work with uh, the widest. Actually, at this point, my understanding, at the time, it was the widest range of supports. Now my understanding has changed and it's gotten very technical. And I've learned a lot more about resin and tensile strength and, and all of that. But um, what we have, I have a small team helping me work on this. Lots lots of testing. And I've got a couple of other like um, people who are like-minded like I am. They have sort of like mm-hmm. an engineering mind. And so what we have determined and, and still finding the right words for it is that the cones of calibration are not the be-all, end-all of tuning your printer. Okay, They are not meant for that. Uh, and they won't work for that purpose. What I wanted was to give new users a jumpstart to enjoying the hobby. And so this was a really decent way to get yourself tuned to have good results. Not perfect results, not the best in the world. In some cases they are, 
depends on your resin. But it was just a way to sort of like get people a yes or no, remove the opinions, like let's get them printing, let's get them enjoying this hobby. And they can learn some of those finer. They can go print the Amerilab City after that and tune from there. But let's go, let's go from here. What so I've let's yeah. Let's uh before we get too down the lead weeds, let's talk about what the success and the failure look like on the, the cones. Sure. So the way it's designed is there's a success side where the goal is that all of these cones print. But what separates your test from a lot of tests is there's actually a fail side on the other side where you want those cones to not print successfully. You want pancakes there, which is worrying for anybody who's doing any resin printing. It's like, why do I intentionally want to have a print failure? (laughs) Uh, But the idea is that it's real easy. If you just keep cranking the exposure on your printer, eventually any mini will print. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to look like a giant blob with no right. details at that point, but it'll print. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is to set a very particular range of exposure. That's the idea is um, to, to clarify for anybody who maybe doesn't know this, the higher your exposure is, mm-hmm. the um, we're, we're going to start talking about dimensional accuracy because this is really important. So, if you have a dimensionally accurate part, meaning a part that is exactly the size that it was intended to be. Uh, so let's say a cube that's 10 millimeters by 10 millimeters by 10 millimeters. Exactly. If you are to overexpose that cube, that cube will get larger. Now it will get larger to some subtle degree. It might be hundredth of a millimeter larger or a tenth of a millimeter larger, but we start to fall out of dimensional accuracy. That largeness translates to the support tips. So if I have a 0.28 support tip, which is my standard medium, and I then overexpose that tip, it stops being a 0.28 and it starts being a 0.32. And all of a sudden, my support has become stronger and I need to know that it has become stronger and this is how we can test it. And so the idea behind the cones is knowing that logic. If I overexpose, my supports become stronger. If I underexpose, my supports become weaker. We now have a side where we the success side is designed to test for underexposure and the fail side is designed to test for overexposure. And in between the two sides lies what I would refer to as the most printable exposure, not perfect, but the most printable. So if you can get, if you can predict a failure and you can predict a success, then we can put you in a place in between the two. Now, the thing that we have learned about that particular, that particular function is that depending on your resin, you will not have, you will have the same structural results, but you will not have the same dimensional accuracy. And this is a part of resin printing that is just coming to the forefront of like community knowledge. And it's really, really important that everybody understands it. So you have what what I'm referring to now is two different types of calibration. One type of calibration specifically talks about dimensional accuracy. I would say that if we were being fair, Dimensional accuracy is the only way you can get perfect exposure, right? It is a 10 millimeter cube. You print it. It is a printed 10 millimeter cube. That is the perfect exposure. The problem is if you, let's say, I'm going to use some extreme examples. Let's say you use Z-Mud. Z-Mud is called Z-Mud for a reason. And uh, it also doesn't cost very much money, right? So you get what you pay for with that product. You can print Z-Mud at perfect dimensional accuracy. But at that accuracy, the resin is so weak that it can't hold itself up with normal pre-supports, right? So Mm -hmm. if we were to calibrate with dimensional accuracy with a low strength resin, 
we would not be able to print pre-supported models because the resin doesn't have the attributes capable of printing pre-supported models. That doesn't mean you can't use perfect dimensional accuracy with low strength resin. But what that does mean is you are going to have to support your own models with those attributes in mind. Like at a certain point, this sounds maddening and (laughs) where you can't, and I'm going to use the phrase support, not to mean the supports and the models, but to provide the supported services Right. Like, what's the answer? We just have a list of, we know these resins aren't crap. Use we, them. If you're we, using ZMUD, sorry, can't help you. I would I would love to say, okay, so there's two answers to that. And that is something I've, I've definitely thought a lot about. Mm-hmm. One answer, yeah, we have recommended resins. The problem is, is like, I don't want to, there are resins out there I've never tried. And I don't want to push people away from companies that might provide a really good product because I prefer a specific one. Um, So publicly just being like, yeah, this is it. You just get this and you're going to be happy. We can do that. And if you're long on our server long enough, you're going to find out the couple of resins that people like go to. It seems the community has rallied around a few favorites. There's a couple. Yeah. Um, But there's some other ones out there that are quite good. They're a little less expensive. Um, But I, I like, I don't want to put like push the community in a certain way um as if i'm sponsored by a certain company recommending their product Uh, the other part of that is while dimensional accuracy is one way of calibrating we can actually take um you can actually take the cones of calibration and print those with zmud now the results are going to provide you a mechanical uh, what i would call a printability exposure but a mechanical exposure test so we're Mm -hmm. calibrating mechanically to the point where ZMUD is capable of holding up the, the model on those supports. But in doing so, it requires that resin, like like we stated earlier, the resin must be overexposed in order to be thicker, in order right. to be strong enough to do what it needs to do. So what you'll end up with, with after the cones with a, a resin like ZMUD is you'll get a fully printable pre-supported model, but you're going to lose a lot of detail because you had to compensate for the weakness with overexposure, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. And sometimes that's acceptable. So what the cones do is they, they give you a printable exposure, a reliably printable exposure. If you can get the cones to print, you can print just about anything. There's a lot involved. I don't want to say anything, but most good pre-supports will work. With that resin at that With, our, with that resin yeah. at that exposure. That doesn't right. mean the outcome is going to be perfect because you might have to overexpose to get there. Right. But it does mean that you will get something. If you bought ZMUD, you bought five liters of ZMUD, well, you're going to want to get rid of it. And we got to get rid of it somehow. So at the very least, you can you can use your resin. You can do stuff. And then, more zombies. Right, more zombies. But then <laughs> Earth you, Elemental. Earth Elemental's work. Gelatinous cube <laughs> does not need any detail. You can print as many gelatinous cubes with ZMUD as you want. But, is, but have, you you run in, have you run into the opposite, like a resin that's so strong that it just needs a gnat whisker to hold it up? Yeah, actually. Um, there's a couple out there. Um, I haven't personally played with it, but um, the Amerilaz AMG 7 is supposed to be high detail, high strength. Um, and so... So here, we're, what we're doing, um, there's there's others. I think Tech Navy Gray has the capability of doing that. And also Frozen Aqua 4K, which is what I'm using, probably the 8K2. And I hear a little whispers about second generation resins coming from like Elegoo. Um, mm-hmm. That might be capable of that. Um, so here's what we... Um, what, what we're discussing in the background, like behind the curtain, is how do we develop a, a process where 
through this process, excuse me, using the cones, and we've got another calibration part coming out soon. Um, by, by using both of these calibration parts, how do we get the best results um, for any resin at, at any time? Sometimes it's just the cones. Sometimes it's the cones and the new tool. And the new tool is, is meant specifically for dimensional accuracy. But I'm working, I'm working with um, a guy, if, you, if you're on our server, it's J3D Tech. And he mm. had some really clever ideas about dimensional accuracy tests that are yes or no. Whereas the tests we are familiar with are like, okay, take take your calipers, measure, yeah. make sure it's First, two, right? buy calipers. Not, yeah, it's buy. not a common household <laughs> item. Yeah. True. And so his test, his tool that he's been developing, we've been talking about how can we provide the best Right. Yeah, we should have. I mean, those of us really in the hobby should have calipers. But at the same time, if you're not, it's like that's a terrible test. You're just eyeballing stuff. Well, his is designed in, in a similar way as mine, where it is a binary yes or no. It fits or it doesn't fit. It prints right. or it doesn't print. And so he and I have sort of partnered up and we've gone back and forth over our two tools, refining discussion. What's the method? How are we going to present this to the community to make it really easy and understandable? So there, there are, let's say, for example, is a scenario where I have a, a high strength resin. Let's say Striatec Navy Gray is, is one that I can say is pretty close to that, if not that. But where you're printing the cones... And, and you're printing them the way they're meant to be printed, but then you go and measure with calipers and you're actually negative on the dimensional accuracy. By going negative, and then here's the weird, here's the funny thing about dimensional accuracy. If you go any direction outside of perfect, you lose detail, right? Um, we tend to want to skew as much towards underexposure as we can rather than overexposure because the the lack of detail is more apparent with overexposure but we can have a resin print the cones perfectly and in doing so force the resin underexposed and that's the opposite of what we want too is we if we come across those resins we then use the second tool where we force the exposure to perfect dimensional accuracy and after that, that process, we go from the cones into dimensional accuracy. We know that it doesn't matter what we print at that point. It's, gonna, it's going to have dimensional accuracy is the perfect detail. There is no way to get better detail than to have a model come out exactly as designed. And so you can take those higher quality resins or the harder resins and, and put them into dimensional accuracy while still adhering to the mechanical necessity of the cones. And everything you print that is well supported will print perfectly for you from then on. It's like, it's the dream. So we're trying to develop this process to speed that, speed that up, get the understanding there. And even if you don't understand how it works technically, it doesn't matter. Do A, do B, profit. Like that's the idea <laughs> in the future. So, um, so we do have version two of cones coming out soon, like real soon, really, really soon. So the way we're, we're in the lot, what I would think as of like this morning, um, I've been talking with J3D tech and we are in agreement that we are probably in the last revision of version two of the cones right now. We just need to verify. We have a whole test print team. We need to verify that our results are consistent, that we're happy with them and we're comfortable with the public being happy with them too. It's not perfect. This is like, it's not a magical tool. It won't work perfectly for everyone every time that, which is just how 3d printing works in general. But 
uh, but they are really, really good. And it's going to provide the most people with, with that. So once that finishes, the goal, the idea is that they will be put into an open closed beta. The open closed beta will only be available to the users on our discord server. So we're going to open it up. We have 1700 users, probably 500 of those users might use it, but that'll be a, a wider data set for us before we go public, public. Yeah, so anybody who wants to see, I learned my lesson the hard way on the first one. And uh, so anybody who wants to get a kind of a sneak peek, we're probably looking at that in the next week, maybe two weeks, uh, mm -hmm. where we're going to be opening that up to our community specifically to test and try. We've made uh, we've made huge improvements to the cones in general. Um, one concern was where on the FEP, printing the same thing over and over in the exact same location on the FEP will cause unnecessary wear. So we've softened some things up so that the pull off the FEP is less, I'm going to use the term sharp, it'll be less sharp of a pull. Um, we have made it more clearly defined. We've isolated each cone so that the cone next to it and its pull on the FEP doesn't disrupt the cone next to it. Um, it also means the outside cones have even pull on the FEP from the inside cones. So there's some revisions there, but the number one hands down best revision we've made is it prints 35% faster. So it used to, you know, on average would take you an hour, hour, 20 minutes. It's 35% faster. So pretty much under an hour for everybody uh, at this point, which is we, we have discussed there is no way to make it print faster at this point. It is <laughs> just not possible. We have just refined it all the way down. Uh, so I am extraordinarily excited to release that. And uh, with any luck, we've solved some of the stability issues that some people might have as far as getting like abnormal results. We're hoping to cut that percentage way back. And then in yeah. that process, we're probably going to be releasing the secondary tool and, um, and then coming up with a whole process of like helping everybody figure out exactly what they need to do and when they need to do it. And so that'll, uh, that'll be coming soon. That that's kind of our contribution, you know, like my company, my, my personal contribution to the community is let's get everybody printing better, having more fun, producing the things they want to print. Uh, so they can just have a good time. I don't know if you guys, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys have have this experience. Have you ever gotten a new something and you're really excited about it and then it doesn't work? Oh, you mean like my Neptune oh, yes. three? Yeah. Anything right? yeah. But specifically from yeah. last episode, yeah. <laughs> you go buy a new PS five and it's a defective one and you get home and you're so excited and you realize it's not working. Like that's the mm -hmm. worst experience. So yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you make the plunge, you buy your 3d printer, you're excited. Let's go. You print the default thing that comes from whatever company and it's the ring or the mm -hmm. chess piece and it prints perfect. And you're like, let's go. And then nothing works. Man, that's, that's not just disappointment. That's like extra disappointment because you are so excited. Mm -hmm. We're trying to fix that. We don't want that. Well, speaking of excitement, we are running out of time, but, but I did not want to let you get out of here without telling me how you're going to destroy several gigabytes of my hard drive. <laughs> okay. Um, we have uh, just recently reached... Yeah, 16 gigabytes, I think. We have just recently reached 1,000 members on our Discord server, which was a huge milestone uh, for uh, Table Flip Foundry's Discord. And I got together with a number, I think it's 23 artists, and these artists decided to do a huge free giveaway. Um, so it is... 
uh, 3D printable content. There's even some paint. Uh, there's a painting tutorial in there. There's some um, 5e module content. I think it's like a dinosaur module with some stat blocks and stuff like that from Critical Crafting. But there is a giant amount of content, and it is 16 gigabytes worth of free miniatures. There's a lightsaber handle in there. There's uh, some wargaming stuff. There's some RPG stuff. Um, the only way to get that is to join our Discord. You can join our Discord through our website, which is tableflipfoundry.com. Uh, you can go on YouTube and find my video explaining all of that stuff. Just look up Table Flip Foundry on YouTube. Uh, but you have to join our Discord server, um, accept our rules. You have to, when you set it up, you're going to pick what content you want to see. So if you like 3D printing content, make sure you select that content. And then our giveaway is going to be available in the channels there. And then you kind of go through that process and it's all totally free. And since I get to talk about it for a minute, uh, I have a new announcement that I haven't made to anybody. So this will be the first place to do it. We are going to be doing sort of like a grand finale. So the files are available. Today's the 20th. I think the files are available until the 25th, which is Sunday. And then they will no longer be available to the public after that. You'll have to go to the artists if you want those files. Uh, on the 26th, we are going to have a um, discount giveaway. So we're going to have a ton of discount codes to all of the artists in the giveaway. So if you really like the stuff they made and you want to buy some of their other stuff, we're going to be giving you from like 30 to 60% off on any one of their stores um, for the artists that participate in that. So we're going to try to, um, we want to give you a little bit of their content for free, but if you love it and you want more of it, I want to save you some money too. And that's just sort of, that's a thank you from them and a special thank you from me. Just, we have one of the best communities out there. They're, they're supremely helpful. Everybody gets helped to some degree. So um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't feel more blessed to have like such a crazy awesome group of people to hang out with every day and this is how everybody's like get, gets to gets to be rewarded for their awesomeness so yeah cool. and i will vouch that table flip foundry's discord channel is a great place to hang out for 3d printing nerds it is uh one of my favorite places to go post when i print something new because i know i will always get some feedback on it and we then, all like feel great four people it. asking what the stl was that's it <laughs> that's it we all want it like i love when i make something really cool i want mm -hmm. i want people to tell me how cool it is it's like that's a place to go like and if nobody else does i'm gonna tell you if i see you posted something that you're really proud of you're gonna be sure that like i'm gonna jump in and, and uh sorry there's a fly i'm gonna jump in and tell you how great it, i think it is and and uh that's part of all of this is all the cool stuff we make we want to show it off and share it and that's a place. All right. All right. Well, we are out of time. Uh, if you want to follow more of Ty and Table Flip Foundry, go to their website. We will have that linked into the show notes, so you'll be able to get to it there. Um, and is there anything else you want to shout out to before we bounce out of here? Uh, no, I think I probably talked Ooh. enough for an hour. <laughs> awesome. If you want Great. to follow more of our programs, you can do so over at printyourgames.com where you'll find all of our episodes and links to our socials and stuff, including twitter.com slash printyourgames, facebook.com slash printyourgames, youtube.com slash param, as well as our links to Spotify, iTunes, and all the places you can listen to this episode. If you want to help the show out, you can do so by giving us a review on any of those services or a comment or thumbs 
thumbs up or on the video services. So on YouTube, a comment and a thumbs up, subscribing to us there really helps spread the word. And on the other platforms, giving us a review is really the best way to get the show into more ears. Until next time, I'm Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param. Jefferson Howard is also known as Seventh Mastery. Don't forget to use your screen protector. And our guest has been Ty from Table Flip Foundry, and we will see you all next time.